Hey everybody, welcome to the Single Tracks Podcast. My name is Jeff, and today I'm going to be talking with Jeff Lenoski. So Jeff is a professional free ride and trials mountain biker who's traveled all over the world competing and starring in various films. He's also a dedicated product tester and bike event organizer with a popular YouTube channel where he's known as the Trail Boss. Thanks for joining us, Jeff. Thanks for having me. So I want to start by asking you how you got started. How'd you get started biking? I got started as a young kid growing up in New Jersey and somehow I had a bike and I fell in love with it. So it wasn't like there was a crew of people doing it. It was always like an individual thing for me. I had a a bike and I like jumping curbs (laughs) and things like that. And uh, I remember being into bikes and then going to a magazine store and finding a BMX magazine. And then that was pretty much like my gateway to the sport. Every month I would go to the, to the magazine stand, pick up a new magazine and just obsess over it and try to learn everything I saw in it until the next issue came out. Oh, nice. And and what were you riding? I mean, was it mostly like urban stuff or were there trails that you would ride back then? This was like in the early eighties. So it was all BMX when I first started and there weren't really any tracks or anything like that. So it was basically just like riding around town, jumping curbs, building small jumps, like behind my house, things like that. Um, nothing really organized. And then when I got a little bit older, I remember I did maybe a handful of BMX races and looking back, they were probably like, you know, 45 minutes to an hour away, but they felt like a thousand miles at that age. (laughs) Yeah. So I really only raced maybe three to five times as a kid. And then when I was in high school, I was in Macy's and I saw a video in the swatch section and I saw Hans Ray doing trials. And at that point, then I was doing BMX and skateboarding and I really liked how I how in my eyes that kind of blended the two sports on a mountain bike. So I picked up my first uh, mountain bike right before I went to college and kind of took it from there. Yeah, that's cool. So you're, I mean, you're known as a trials rider and a mountain biker. What did your progression look like? How'd you go from like BMX to mountain bike to trials? Like I said, when I was going to college, I I was 6'4". I kind of outgrew BMX bikes. So that's why I started to get into skateboarding a little bit more because I figured there was no height limit (laughs) versus trying to cram on a small 20 inch BMX bike. So I got that first mountain bike and, um, you know, I worked at a bike shop. So there were lots of guys there that would take me mountain biking. But what I like to do was try to imitate what I did on my BMX bike and my skateboard, which was, you know, ride over stuff, jump over stuff, jump on and off of things. Mm -hmm. So, you know, they were always older guys. I was a young Grom in the shop and I would always be stopping to ride over stuff on the side of the trail and annoying all them as they wanted to do, you know, 10, 20, 30 mile fitness rides. (laughs) And so in my eyes, when I first started mountain biking, I would, I would ride cross country. But what I really enjoyed doing was just doing trials because it seemed like a hybrid of at the time, a hybrid of BMX and skateboarding, you know, ride up and over obstacles, jump off things, stuff like that. Yeah. Did you ever ride like a dedicated trials bike or were you always doing it on a mountain bike? So the first bike that I ever got for mountain biking or like aside from a BMX bike was an actual mountain bike. And at that time, all the mountain bikes were pushing, you know, anything high tech was, was designed to be super lightweight at the time. You know, it was a uh, 200 gram handlebars or hundred gram handlebars and super lightweight stuff. So finding strong mountain bike stuff was really challenging. So even though a mountain bike fit me best because I was six, four, I struggled with finding equipment that was strong enough. And, and plus I was just getting started. So I was a little bit of a hack. Yeah. So I did get a, I did get a mountain bike or a trials bike and it was an Ibis 20 inch trials bike. It was like one of the only mass produced ones at the time, you know, it was still hard to find, but it was actually mass produced. Mm -hmm. So I had one of those and it was a 20 inch bike and I rode it for probably a little bit less than a year. And it was great because it allowed me to like learn a bunch of trial stuff and everything, but it was way, way, way too small. Like by that point I was six, six, four. So (laughs) watching me ride a 20 inch bike just looked ridiculous. Yeah. So then because of like the prevalence of mountain biking and dual slalom and stuff like that, then you did start to get some higher end equipment geared towards more aggressive riding, not just like super light XC. So then I was able to like go back to a mountain bike, which fit me better because I could start to put together bikes that would actually hold up. Yeah. But one of the side benefits was being so big and riding at that area, you learned really early on to be smooth. So 
even to this day, even though I'm so big, I'm 6'4", 220 pounds, like pretty light on a bike and I don't really go through too much equipment. And, and it was basically by necessity when I started. Yeah, that's interesting. Well, what are some of the sort of fundamental skills that you worked on in the beginning that you're able to sort of transition into more advanced tricks? I know a lot of people, they look at, they see your videos on YouTube and the things you're able to do in a lot of your videos, like, and wonder how would I get to that level? Like what's, what's sort of the starting place for that? I think the biggest challenge is with, um, mountain biking. A lot of people get into it as an adult and they come at, sometimes they come at it from a background of never ridden BMX or just played on their bike as a kid. So when I got into mountain biking, I got into it, you know, 17, 18 years old, but I already knew how to bunny hop and balance and stuff like that. So all those little fundamental skills I already had in my back pocket when I started. So then when you do start mountain biking, it's more about trying to get in shape and endurance and physical fitness and stuff like that. And not necessarily so much about like how to ride your bike over stuff. So I think the biggest challenge that I see that as far as technical riding goes, you know, a lot of, a lot of people get into mountain biking and they're concerned with like, how far and how fast they can go and not just like taking the time to like if you're riding down a trail and there's a challenging rock section like go back and session it a few times or if there's a log that's giving you trouble like your buddies will wait you know stop <laughs> and, and try to go over it a couple times because yeah if you just ride over that stuff and say i'll get it next time you're never going to put in the repetitions that you need to get those skills down so my, my advice for people whenever they ask how to improve technical riding is to spend 15 minutes to 30 minutes, you know, a couple times a week, just playing on your bike, learning how it reacts underneath you, learning how your body inputs move certain parts of the bikes and how to balance and stuff like that. So that when you go out on the trail, you're just, it becomes more intuitive. Yeah. That's really interesting too. And I've noticed that, you know, having my own kids seeing how they, I mean, they just, they got no problem sessioning. And, you know, I can just imagine that, you know, you were kind of the same way, just kind of messing around on the bike and trying things over and over. But then as adults, like we kind of get away from that. And especially like you said, too, if you're coming into the sport later in life, you're kind of impatient and you just want to like keep up with your buddies and don't want to put that time in to build the skills. And I think that's definitely a challenge a lot of people face. Yeah. So the, the angle that I came at it was, was through BMX and skateboarding. So my mindset was always about the riding first, you know? Mm -hmm. So when I first started, I, I did trial. Well, when I first started, I did cross country cause that's basically all there was, you know, cross country and downhill. And then a couple years into it, like you'd start to see some more trials events and stuff like that. And living on the East coast trials was actually really popular back then because everybody just did it on the, on the cross country bike that they owned. There wasn't special equipment or stuff like that. So if you were to go to a local cross country race, everybody would do the race. And then afterwards, while they're tabulating results and, and times and stuff like that, they'd always have a little trials event. And, you know, the beginners would do beginner class on their mountain bikes and the experts would do expert class on their mountain bikes. And it was just a fun way for everybody to go out and like, just ride little challenging sections of terrain. It wasn't special bikes and anything too crazy or whatever. Mm -hmm. So that technical riding was always like in my DNA from when I started. And then as I started moving up to the ranks, you know, competing as a beginner expert sport, I would do all the disciplines. I would do cross country. I would do downhill. I would do trials. But as I got higher in the ranks and started competing in expert and pro, I just did better in trials than anything else. Hmm. So once I started seeking sponsorship and stuff like that, it was always for trials and a little bit of downhill. Like I did, I did race pro downhill a little bit. I didn't, I would do well regionally, but it wasn't like I was setting the national world on fire or anything like that. So mm -hmm. when I got my first sponsor as a pro, it was for Schwinn and they basically sponsored me to, to ride trials. And at that point I figured when I go to all these events, I'm so focused on the, the trials that that's, that's all I'll compete in. And then that's basically what I got known for. But I but I've always mountain biked like I've always been a mountain biker, not just a trials rider. Yeah. Well, sticking a little bit more with the trials thing. I mean, I'm not super familiar with it and I don't know if our listeners are either. So is there like a people basically do you do like a routine where you kind of have your your set of tricks that you're going to do or, or maybe there's a course or are there like different skills that you're graded on, like, say, your bunny hop or your 
track stand or different things like that? Yeah, it's um, mountain bike trials is all about just riding technical terrain and getting from point A to point B over essentially a, an obstacle course that somebody sets up for you. So mm-hmm. it's basically on natural terrain. You know, there are instances where they do competitions on urban terrain and stuff like that, but it's basically somebody will come in and with, with some tape and tape it off just like you would a downhill course or a cross country course or whatever. Mm-hmm. But, um, there's a right hand boundary and a left hand boundary and they just send you over the roughest terrain they can find. Or it's, you know, it's, it's relative to your category. It's relative to your category. So like a beginner trials course might just be like what you would find on a normal mountain bike ride, but it's like a tricky section, you know? Okay. And then a pro course could be up and over waterfalls and rocks and logs. And there's a time limit, but it doesn't matter if you do it the fastest or the slowest or whatever, just as long as you finish within the time limit. And they'll usually like make the length of the courses long enough so that you have to kind of keep moving. You don't want to just like be standing around thinking too much. So the time limits, two minutes, they'll usually make the course long enough that like you need to keep moving at a relatively steady pace to make it through in in a time period. Okay. And then they grade you score you or whatever. Yeah, there's no there's no tricks or anything like that. It's just whether or not you put your foot down or your hands down or you fall off your bike. It's just it's just all about utilitarian riding over obstacles. There's no tricks or stunts or whatever. It looks like we're doing tricks or stunts because <laughs> if you're if you're trying to make your way across a log and you could only fit one tire, you're going to hop to your back tire only and drop down. So it looks like you're doing a trick, but you're, you're just doing it solely for utilitarian purposes, just to, to make it through the course and basically not mess up. Okay, cool. Yeah. That, I mean, that sounds really interesting. Now I want to, I want to dive deeper into it and start getting into that. That sounds like a lot of fun. So I've read that you hold the world record for the highest bunny hop on a full size mountain bike. So what did it take to pull that off? Um, bunny hopping was just always basically my favorite, favorite move as a kid, you know, Hmm. nowadays skate parks are prevalent all over the place and stuff like that. Back when I was a kid, there wasn't a lot of ramps and things like that laying around. So my primary focus as a BMX rider when I started was to just cruise around town and jump curbs and jump over stuff. So you just (laughs) had to learn to bunny hop because there weren't ramps everywhere. So I would just ride around town and whether I was out practicing tricks or doing a paper route, I'd always bunny hop garbage cans and bunny hop curbs and, (laughs) you know, just, just ride around and bunny hop everything. So it's just a a move that I got good at just because it was like the favorite, my favorite thing to do. And then when I got into mountain biking, I you know, like I said, I carried those skills with me and I became known as the guy that could always bunny hop his mountain bike onto high obstacles. <laughs> and early on in my trials career, if there was always a, if there was a, a course that required big bunny hops, I was usually really good because I was able to, to make those big jumps. But then if it was real technical riding, that's where my skills kind of lacked. So, and it was just because I hadn't been doing it super long. Yeah. So I just had the reputation as being the, the guy that could pull big bunny hops. And then every year at Mammoth Mountain, that used to be a really, really big race venue where they'd have thousands of people and they'd come and watch cross country and downhill. And the trials events were always like right in the main exhibitor area. So it was always cool. You'd have a ton of spectators watching you do these trials events right, right amongst all the teams and the exhibitors and, and everything. And they would always have an annual bunny hop contest that was basically like you know, the unofficial world championships of, of bunny hopping. If you won mammoth, you were like known as the bunny hopper. And then one year, one year I did it and I actually set the world record. So it was 45 and a half inches on a full size mountain bike. Wow. That's crazy. So close to four feet just on a regular, regular mountain bike. Although there are hard tails, um, you know, mountain bikes with suspension nowadays, they're, they're designed so well that they keep your tires on the ground. So we would do this on hardtails because then that way you can put all your, all the energy that you put into jumping off the ground actually takes you off the ground. Yeah. Were they rigid hardtails or, or they're just hardtails? So you did have a suspension fork? I think, I think the, I think the year that I did set the world record, I did it with a front suspension fork. But even back then, like I still ride a front suspension bike on my, or a front suspension fork on my trials bike. And they're, they're pretty stiff. It's basically when you, it's there for when you mess up, essentially. It's there for landing too, I imagine. <laughs> yeah. Cause with, if anybody's ever watched trials and if you have no idea, um, what trials is, I'd say just Google it, you know, Google mountain bike trials. It's a lot of like hopping. So you want like pretty rigid. Yeah. And are you clipped in or you ride flats for mountain bike trials? 
always ride flats. And the reason for that is, um, it's a, like I said, the whole way that you're judged in that sport, the reason it's called observed trials is because you're riding an obstacle course. You have an observer that's watching you to make sure that you don't put your foot down or your hand down or go out of bounds. And there's like a point structure. Like if you put your foot down on the ground, it counts as one point. If you were to fall over completely, it counts as five points. Mm -hmm. So a lot of times if you're riding super, super tricky, it's going to save you points. If you, if you just put your foot down and took one point, then if you were clipped in and you accidentally slipped out and even if you were on a hillside and you just slip out and put your thigh on the ground, that's going to be considered a fall mm-hmm. and you'd get five. So even though when you're clipped in, you could dance the bike around and it's awesome. Like you're so connected. Mm-hmm. It's just way less risky to just be on flat pedals. And if you need to put your foot down, just quickly or, and get back on and keep going. It's just a little bit safer. Mm-hmm. And then when I first started riding trials, I've always done that sport on flat pedals, but I've always mountain biked since the inception of clipless pedals. That's how long I've been mountain biking. I've always clipped in on the trail and, um, on the trail, I'm a pretty proficient clipless rider, but when you're riding trials, sometimes there's just these weird positions you get into where you just, you can't unclip. <laughs> and yeah, and I'll have people say like, well, I could unclip. You can't, you can't unclip. <laughs> you're, you know, you're like upside down vertical or something. Like if you need to get off your bike, you're, you want to be on flats. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Well, yeah. So you've been a pro rider since the early nineties and judging by your current YouTube videos, you're definitely still getting after it. So how do you manage to keep riding at such a high level? Um, I think I have bike ADD to be honest with you. Um, I've never, I've had like so many different time periods in my career. I've always enjoyed mountain bike trials. So that's been like the underlying thread, but I've never, um, stuck with one particular thing other than trials or offered something to sponsors other than trials, like for, for longer than five, six years at a time or something. So I don't, I don't, I never get to the point where something gets like completely stale. So when I first started riding my first year as a pro, I won the national championship. So I was still in college. I was a senior, just about to graduate. Um, I was going to school for sports management. And it was always like my dream looking at magazines and stuff to to be a professional mountain bike rider. But I never thought it was really possible. And my senior year of college, the trials national championship happened to be in Traverse City, Michigan. And it was on a lot of man-made courses, which required the big bunny hops and the big moves, like I said. Mm-hmm. So I won the national championship that year. It was it was definitely right place, right time, a little bit of luck, stuff like that. But it, it definitely set me up for future success. So then I graduated. I had that national championship in my back pocket, so to speak, or whatever. I, I had a full-time job, and I would just take vacation time to travel for different events and everything the second year second year I finished second. So then now that I had finished first and second, I was really putting like putting all the effort into trying to become a full-time professional rider. Mm-hmm. But it was hard because all the focus was on cross country and downhill at the time. Yeah. The only person that was really sponsored for mountain bike trials was Hans Ray. Well, was it bigger in Europe? I mean, was this like the U S just wasn't on board with it or, or was trials just not big anywhere? So Trials has never really necessarily been a huge sport, but it's always been a fun sport to watch. In Europe, it was bigger, but in Europe, it was a little bit different. Trials in Europe, the reason they started doing trials on bicycles in Europe is because motorcycle trials was the real big sport. And then kids would actually do bicycle trials. Okay. It wasn't like an adult sport. Now they're doing Razor scooter trials there from what I've seen. (laughs) I'm sure they probably are. So that's like where the idea of bicycle trials came came from was for kids to do it on 20 inch bicycles, more, mostly like modified BMX bikes. When Hans came over to the U S mountain biking was booming and he was a really popular trials rider and he started doing it on a mountain bike mm-hmm. and people loved it because it was a mountain bike similar to what they rode, but he was just doing all this incredible technical riding, which if anybody goes for a mountain bike ride, you're inevitably inevitably going to come up on something technical. And it's just natural for, you know, anybody that rides bikes, you know, you're going to come up on roots or rocks or some kind of rocks that's going to challenge you. Mm-hmm. So Hans basically showed that all that stuff could be ridden. So after, after competing for two years in trials and getting those two championships, I, I got Schwinn's attention, but the real value for them was the ability to use those trial skills to go around and do demonstrations. Okay. So 
you needed to do well in the competitions to, in order to want people to come to your bike shop or the, or your festival or whatever to do a trials demo. But the value was never really in the competition so much as it was the demos. Yeah. So when I first started riding professionally, it was for Schwinn and I would compete because I liked validating myself and, and doing all that stuff. But, but I would travel around and I would do like a hundred demonstrations a year. Oh, wow. So all kinds of bike shops and festivals. And, um, there was a few years in there where we would do trials demos on the Vans warp tour, um, which was awesome because it would expose mountain biking to like a much younger demographic than what the sport was used to. So trials demos were something that I always did. And when I was on Schwinn, I rode for them for six years or five years and I was really into the whole competition aspect. So that whole thing ended in 2000. They, they filed for bankruptcy. And the last two years, 1999 and 2000, I had always been second, third in the country. You know, I, I won the national championship in 93. And then every other year from 93 to 99, I was always, you know, second, third, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> and I figured, you know, I really got to buckle down and focus on like trying to win some more trials championships. So in 99 and 2000, I won the North American championship, which, which was our national championship two years in a row. Oh, wow. And in the process kind of burned myself out because a lot of, a lot of the reason I didn't win from 94 to 98 was because I, I would like to go hit dirt jumps with my friends or do more trials demos. So it's hard to like practice when you're going to bike shops, doing trials demos all the time. And so in 99, 2000, I like really focus on competing and it was awesome. And I, and I did really well, but I kind of burned myself out on trials. So when Schwinn went bankrupt, I made the switch to Giant for 2001, and that was coincidentally the same time when mountain bike freeride films were really taking off, and I got offered a part in New World Disorder, which was like a pretty big mountain bike franchise for a long time. So I kind of gravitated away from competition trials and started filming for these mountain bike movies. So it was basically like the precursor to Danny McCaskill's. Ryan Leach would film for the Crank series. I would film for New World Disorder. And we kind of like helped get the whole like urban trials thing started. Yeah. So that was my main focus for a bunch of years was like mountain bike trials and street riding, like kind of hybrid of the two. Mm -hmm. But during that time, like I still would always do a lot of trials demos because it was an awesome way to just go to bike shops and entertain people and stuff like that. So mountain bike trials demos were always part of my program forever just because it's a no brainer. It's a, it's a super fun, easy way to just go and have a good time and demonstrate skills to people. Yeah. Are you still doing those today? Um, I'll still do them on occasion for sure. But yeah, I'll, I'll get to, I'll get to that in a second. <laughs> Sorry to jump ahead. So, yeah. <laughs> so I'd say for maybe five or six years, like, or maybe even longer, my, my main focus then was like on that real hardcore urban free ride street, street kind of stuff. And I had like a riding compound in my backyard and, and all that kind of stuff. And then probably maybe five or six years ago, I was training with one of my good friends, Aaron Chase, and we were hitting jumps in the wintertime and I fell and I broke my leg. Ooh. So that was like in February. And when I was coming back from that injury, I wasn't able to like ride trials right away or do any of the hardcore stuff. So I, I kind of got back into trail riding just because it was something fun to do mm -hmm. as I was rehabbing and stuff like that. And then early spring was rolling around summertime. I was riding for different companies like Fox and Giant at the time, and they wanted photos for different things. So I wasn't able to do, you know, crazy street stuff. So I would go out and do mountain bike photo shoots, different, yeah. you know, trail riding shots and whatever. And that coincided with the whole enduro boom. So oh, nice, yeah, good timing. At the time, at the time, I was like, my bike ADD kicked in, and I was like, well, if I'm doing these photo shoots, trail riding, and stuff like that, like maybe I should race because then you know it wouldn't seem so odd that somebody sees a picture of Lanas, <laughs> who's like the street guy, right, mountain biking. So my bike ADD kicked in, and I was like, you know, what? I'm going to start racing enduro. And when I do things, I always go like head over heels. So then there was probably like four years or so where I was like completely focused on racing enduro and I would race enduro on the East coast and I would do pretty well. And then if I traveled like internationally to Crankworks Whistler or something, I, I wouldn't really do that awesome, but I could, I could do pretty well in like regional events and stuff like that. Yeah. And then the whole 
internet thing started kicking off with like YouTube and stuff like that. And I was thinking of an idea for a mountain bike, um, video series. And I was like still riding street trials and stuff like that. And I thought I was thinking originally like that I would do a video series focusing on that. But as, as my reputation started to change a little bit to somebody who does trail ride quite a bit. Mm -hmm. When I would go to do those trials demos, it started to be like a pretty consistent narrative where people would come to my trials demo. They, they knew that I mountain biked and stuff on the side and that I was doing this cool stuff like technical riding and everything. And and everybody started having these challenges. No matter where I went, people would be like, that's a really cool demo. You know what? I have a trail that (laughs) would challenge you. I've never seen somebody clear, you know, such such a trail. And then I'd be in California the next week and they're like, I have the trail for you. I've never seen anybody clean this. (laughs) So then I started thinking that would be a really cool video series if you went around and tried to actually tackle those trails. Yeah. And once I started filming for that video series and I saw that I could do what I really liked to do, which was ride technical terrain and film it and document it, I kind of gravitated away from enduro racing because I've always just wanted to like find a way to provide value for sponsors. And I always figure like if I'm going to trail ride, like I really want to go out and trail ride and ride technical stuff, but nobody's going to support you to just go out and ride technical stuff. So I, I should probably race. But once the avenue of going out and riding technical stuff and making it entertaining happen via YouTube and, you know, the internet and stuff like that, my focus pretty much changed to that. Yeah. That's really cool to understand that progression and some of the adjustments that you made over the years, sort of as you're getting older, it it sounds like too, you've dealt with some injuries, but maybe not a whole lot. I mean, how does like trials compare to say enduro racing in terms of the risk of injury or the types of injuries that maybe some other athletes that you know are facing? Um, I've ridden trials for over 23 years and I've definitely gotten injured doing that. But I would say out of all the stuff that I've done to the average person, they might say it's the most dangerous, but to me, it's been the safest. All my injuries have been either dirt jumping or trail riding and stuff like that. Never necessarily trials. Like I've definitely had bumps and bruises or whatever, but the big injuries have been doing other stuff. And I think the reason for that is with, um, like my first big injury was when I was riding for Schwinn and I separated my shoulder. That was when I first started kind of getting into dirt jumps and you start to hit some jumps and you start to feel real confident. Mm -hmm. And then you're, before you know it, you're hitting jumps that you really have no business hitting. And then next thing you know, you're flying through the air and you're like, oh man, I haven't really figured this out completely yet. (laughs) And you hit the ground and you crash and you get hurt. Whereas with trials, the sport is all built around progression because you can't fall off something four feet high until you've learned to get up onto something four feet high. Right. Yeah. Well, I mean, if you, if you want to, if you want to pick up your bike and put it on something four feet high and try to learn to trials drop off of it, sure you get hurt. But, <laughs> but usually the progression is like, if you're going to jump off something, you should learn how to get on it first. Yeah. And in order to get on it, you've, you've fallen off something one foot, a hundred to a thousand times learning to get on it. And then you've done the same thing off two feet and three feet. So by the time you've gotten to four or five feet heights where you, you know, you could actually hurt yourself, Mm -hmm. you've fallen and, and learned like your body awareness and stuff so much getting to that point that you just become fairly aware of like when things are starting to go wrong and like what the evacuation plan is and, and things like that. Yeah, it seems like, too, trials is, you know, it's a little bit lower. I mean, it's a lot lower speed. And so it seems like the potential for, like, seriously devastating injuries are a bit lower. Yeah, it's a lot of it's a lot of thumping on the ground. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you fall off something, you just thud. Yeah. Well, do you have, but from that, do you get, like, you know, repetitive motion type injuries? Or, like, I can imagine that being tough on your your body to to have those bumps to do a lot of them. (laughs) Yeah. Like a big thing when I was riding trials all the time, a big thing would be like forearm tendonitis because you're constantly pulling the brakes as hard as you can. You know, trials is all about brakes. So you just develop this like incredible grip strength because you're constantly always on your brakes. So, you know, forearm tendonitis, it could bother your lower back if you don't take care of it and spend time in the gym because, you know, you're always landing drops and absorbing it with your lower back. Mm -hmm. And then, a lot of like sprained ankles and stuff because if you're riding on a pile of rocks or some sketchy stuff and you and you have to f- jump off, you're not always going to land perfectly. So you're going to land on some like uneven stuff. So so those are always big in, big injuries. But definitely like 
when you're trail riding and anytime you have speed and you can't really fall as eloquently, those are the ones that are going to get you. <laughs> yeah. Interesting. So yeah, talking more about your video series on YouTube, you know, in a lot of the videos, you're tackling some really steep and technical climbs. And I know that a lot of our readers and listeners, uh, that's something that they struggle with is climbing either the technical aspect of it, or for a lot of them, it's the endurance and the stamina. So what, what are some of your sort of general tips for climbing on a mountain bike? Yeah. So there's a couple of different ways to break it down. You know, there's, there's technical climbs that are more anaerobic where it's something that's maybe 50 to a hundred yards long and you can, you can afford to go all out and, you know, use all your energy because it's only going to last for a, a few seconds or a minute or something like that on stuff like that. I actually just did a video for my YouTube channel where I gave a bunch of like technical climbing tips and you can watch that video. And some of the tips that I give the viewers are the biggest mistake that I see people making on short technical climbs is that they wait too long to, to the obstacle. Or if you're, if you're approaching a short steep section or something technical on a climb, you'll see a lot of riders like put it in a really low gear. So they're spinning a high cadence and they just sit and pedal easily mm-hmm. until they get to the obstacle. And then it's like this light bulb goes off in their head <laughs> where that you can see like the sense of urgency, like now I'm on the obstacle. Now I better do something. Yeah. And then they typically will either pedal strike on the ground because your timing isn't right. So you'll strike into what you're trying to ride over mm-hmm. or you'll get your front end up onto it and then you'll peel out your back tire. Yeah. And that typically happens because you're waiting too long to start your, your motion. So if you could imagine you're riding down a trail and you're 20 yards away from a rock step up or a log that's happens to be on a hill, you need to start pedaling then because you want to get speed going so that you're only carrying momentum over the obstacle. So you're trying to like make your tires have to do less things and, and you want to just get that speed going and then carry over the obstacle, not try to gain speed or traction once you're on it. So once you start doing, once you start riding like that and you're you're just carrying your bike over something, it's going to give you better traction. It's going to give you better momentum, stuff like that. So that's my first tip is to when there's short climbs, you know, something that you know that you have the energy to, to make it up. If you see an obstacle on it, put the, put the time and effort, you know, in a little bit early so that yeah. you just carry it over this. The second thing is I notice a lot of people don't necessarily ride with their elbows bent. Hmm, yeah. And whether it's descending or climbing, you always want to keep some bend in your elbows. And the reason you want to do that is, first of all, like if it's a steep climb, when you bend your elbows, it gets your chest closer to the handlebars and it'll allow you to keep your front end down. But you also can smooth out like when you're doing a climb and there's different undulations or small obstacles or stuff like that, your bike is always constantly being forced to like slow down and lose its momentum and stuff like that. Because every single time you hit any kind of obstacle, it's stopping your bike. So if you could imagine riding into those obstacles with your arms slightly bent, and if you see a small bump in the ground or a root or any kind of obstacle that looks like it's going to slow your bike down, you actually use your arms to slightly extend your, your body forward. So as you down pedal with wherever your cranks are in that pedal revolution, just give a slightly harder pedal, unweight your seat a tiny bit so you're not sitting all your weight on your butt, and then just extend your arms a little bit so you just gently push your bike through the obstacle and then just sit down and catch back up and put your arms back in that bent position. So your bike is actually underneath you and it's doing slight gentle accelerations and then that allows your body to just continue basically at the same pace. Like if you were to look at a rider from the side riding up a technical route section on a hill, my bike is going to do like a couple micro accelerations, but my body should just continue at the same pace versus if you don't do that, you're going to look at it and, and somebody's bike's going to just keep hitting obstacles and slow down and slow down and slow down. So if you could do that to counteract it, Yeah. I'm trying to imagine this too. I mean, so you're saying like push forward where, you know, I think of certain situations where maybe I want to like pull up on the front end, like if there's a rock or something, I mean, I guess it depends on the size of the obstacle. Yeah, it it definitely. I'm talking about like, um, you know, anything like under 
two inches or three inches where like you can roll over it. So, something that you could roll over, but once you put it on a hill, it's usually going to slow your bike down and, right. and you see people either pedal strike on it or, or lose traction on their back tire. When you ride into those things with your arms bent, you could just gently push your bike through them and just keep your bike accelerating. Okay. So those are my two tips for, for doing it on hill climbs, uh, where they're short anaerobic things. But then the other problem that you see a lot of people having are on long technical climbs. And, you know, obviously aside from just being in better shape, you know, that's obviously going to make those things easier. Mm -hmm. But, um, I just was talking to somebody about a climb that I did recently in Colorado called bitter brush. And it's, it's like a two mile climb and there's a bunch of technical sections Uh in it. Um, and they're just saying like, they've never been able to, uh, link the whole thing together. The, the number one thing that's going to help you obviously is, is knowing the trail. Like once you ride a trail, you know how to pace yourself, you know, when you can go real hard, you know, when you need to to rest and stuff like that. But Mm -hmm. a lot of people, if there's like a long sustained climb, something that's going to be an an aerobic challenge, if there's technical sections, don't be afraid to, to really rest in between. Like (laughs) you'd be amazed if I'm doing some of these real technical climbs, I'm going to go and my heart rate's going to be through the roof. And if I see a a spot to, to soft pedal for a minute, because I know something else is coming, it's like amazing how, how easy I'll go (laughs) and really try to recover because it it makes a huge difference. You don't want to, you don't want to go complete. You don't want to completely stop because you don't want to have to get warmed up again or anything like that, but just like really going easy and getting your composure so that then you could do another hard effort is going to make a huge, huge, huge difference. Yeah. And that's where those track standing skills come in handy. I guess you're going so slow that it almost looks like you're standing still. Yeah. Track standing is invaluable. It's not so much about um, if your readers aren't familiar or your listeners aren't familiar with what a track stand is like, if you've ever seen somebody on a road bike come to a traffic light and just balance in place or a group rides regrouping and you see the guy just balancing in place, that's called a track stand. Mm-hmm. And that's a really valuable skill to learn. And if you Google that, there's probably how to's all over the internet. But the reason a track stand helps so much on technical climbing isn't because ideally you don't ever want to stop on a climb because right. once you lose that momentum, it's really hard to get going. But I think the biggest benefit it has is just giving you – it's increasing your window to recover. So if you're riding on a climb and your back tire slips out, the average rider, once their tire slips out, they don't know how to track stand. They're just going to tip right over. So they're either going to unclip and put their foot down or fall over or whatever because they don't have – they don't have those balance fundamentals mm-hmm. where somebody that's really good at track standing, your tire might peel out or something like that. And you're not looking to balance, but if you know how to, it's going to give you a much bigger window to recover and then like get another crank in. Or, you know, if you're riding behind a rider and they stop just being able to stop on a trail and then continue, it's going to be, it's going to be invaluable. Yeah. Like just having that, that fundamental skill that allows you to stop and go, Um, You're not necessarily doing it on purpose. It's more like helping you when you need to recover. Yeah. Like I never go into a climb thinking like I'm going to stop in the middle. (laughs) Like ideally (laughs) you never want to stop. But but if I lose traction and I something happens, I can. So that's why it's it's useful to to learn those track stands. Well, yeah, I've seen so many videos of you riding just insanely steep, insanely technical climbs. I think the most recent one was one in Michigan. You said that people like challenge you to do these different climbs. Has there ever been one that you couldn't do or you couldn't clean it? Um, there's been a couple times. So when I first started doing the video series and it's still pretty much how I do it is, um, using some of the websites that have user generated ranking systems or, or trail grading systems. So I would either use trail forks or I would use, um, um, MTB project single tracks, maybe I would use, well, <laughs> actually now I've been using, so this, this story is two years old and this was a, this was a MTB project story, but now I, I actually do use single tracks quite a bit. When I first started doing it, I would travel around and I did a couple trails in North Carolina and I did some in Florida. And then I was heading to Tucson, Arizona, and there was a trail that was on there called La Milagrosa and it, and it talks about the trail. The trail is primarily a downhill trail. And in the description, it says it starts with a one mile hike a bike. And <laughs> these are all user generated things. So I'm thinking like, you know, I, I did some climbs in North Carolina. I, I just came off doing a video in Florida. 
and stuff that are double black diamonds, pretty challenging, but I was able to get it. So now I'm going into Tucson kind of feeling myself a little bit thinking like, <laughs> all right, well, hike a bike. We'll see if this is actually a hike a bike, you know, um, I'm going to, I'm going to climb this and, and really show everybody <laughs> that this is, this is climbable. And I go and I, I check out this climb and I realize that riders in Tucson that consider this a double black diamond are some pretty serious riders because <laughs> the climb was really, really challenging. Um, so that's a video that's on my channel called La Milagrosa. That one was really tough. Um, there were sections in there where I didn't think I was going to get it. And, and ironically enough, the hardest section on that trail never even made it into the edit of the video because when I first started making trail boss videos, I was all about trying to keep them very short and concise, everything under three minutes. And, and this was a really long ride. It was probably like a 45 minute ride at least. Oh wow! So you only could show the highlights and the section that was the most difficult part, which was a really, really steep, really loose section just didn't look impressive on camera. And I don't know, I could have probably just skipped it, but I always want to like do the whole entire trail to, if I say I did the whole trail, I want to do the whole trail. Even if I don't show it, I still always have to just do it. And then most recently, the one I did from Marquette, that was probably one of the most difficult lines I've ever done. And that was, it, it doesn't even, you know, to be honest, it doesn't even look that hard when you watch the video, because when things go right, it just, you just look at it and you're like, yeah, of course you should be able to ride that. Yeah. But the moves that you had to use, I mean, you're doing a lot of like hops and things that, you know, most people can't do that. So clearly if you're doing that, it was, it was a tough climb. Yeah. My mantra is like always to try to not show hopping because I like coming from a trials background, whatever you want to do, any kind of technical move, you know, you're just kind of always hopping to do it. So now that I'm on a full size mountain bike with suspension, like I always try not to hop. Hmm. So that's kind of my, my mantra, but on that particular climb, there was absolutely no way on the face <laughs> of the earth I was ever making that without hopping. So basically that was a trail called bareback and it's a downhill trail and we were going to film a different trail and that was, we, we were only riding that trail backwards because it was the most direct way to get to what we were intending to shoot. And within pedaling up that trail for five minutes, I was like, man, this is the trail we need to film on. This would be super sweet. And then we got halfway up and my friend that I was with, who's a local was like, check out this a line. When you come down, there's like an a line and a B line. And the a line was this really steep rock slab. And I was like, Ooh, man, if I could ever make it up that this would seal the deal. We definitely need to film this backwards versus what we were going to do mm -hmm. in the proper direction. And I spent over three hours and over 65 tries Oh wow! figure out how to get that line. And then when I finally stuck it, then we went back down and put the whole thing together. But I sat there forever trying to figure out how to do that. It was just really steep and it was, the traction wasn't that great. And it was really scary. It's a, it's a really steep side slope and I'm clipped in. And if you were to slip out and high side down, you're going down pretty far. Yeah. Yeah. You're not going to stop. And that, and that's the, that's a weird thing, like with technical riding and with trials riding and everything, it definitely takes a, a particular personality. And, and I don't know if it's a personality pro or a personality con, but <laughs> I have plenty of friends that we can go for a mountain bike ride. And if there's a log in the trail, they'll try it a few times. And if they can get it, great. And if they can't get it, that's fine. It's not going to make or break their day one way or another. Mm -hmm. And I have like the character flaw, I think, where like, if I try it, I have to do it. <laughs> and, and the difference with technical riding is, you know, if you're doing Red Bull Rampage and hucking off a 30 foot cliff, you basically get one shot. You're either going to do it or you can't. But when you're trying to hop over like, you know, a two or three foot log, you're not going to kill yourself. So you do have the ability to try it a hundred times if you're going to try it a hundred times. And I'm the guy that'll sit there and, sit there and try it a hundred times. <laughs> so sometimes that tenacity is good, but other times it could get pretty frustrating. Like the, the climb at that, I was talking about from Marquette, like it almost gets to the point where you're not even happy that you did it. You're just glad you could stop. <laughs> you know? You're just like, thank God I, I don't have to try that again. Yeah. Versus like being really excited that you did it. <laughs> yeah. That's funny. Cool. Well, we're going to take a break real quick, but when we come back, we're going to talk about some of Jeff's favorite trails that he's ridden. Stay tuned. You can't see me, but I'm wearing an awesome single tracks hat right now. It's actually the reason my voice sounds so amazing. 
Okay, so maybe not, but you never know until you get a hat for yourself. Go to shop.singletracks.com to find Singletracks hats, t-shirts, stickers, tubular headwear, and can coolers. Shipping is free within the USA, and your purchase helps support the Singletracks podcast. That's shop.singletracks.com, and thank you for your support. And we're back. So, Jeff, it sounds like you've worked pretty closely with a lot of your sponsors over the years developing and improving products. What are some of the products you've enjoyed working on the most? One of the products I've enjoyed working on the most was probably about six years ago. I was approached by Teva to help them develop a mountain bike footwear line. Mm -hmm. And that was pretty much like any kid's dream come true to help develop a sneaker and then have it named after you. So yeah, she was called the Teva Lynx. And when we first designed it, the guys at Teva were, I don't know if they were half joking or serious, but they want to call it like the big Lenoski, which was a play on the yeah. big Lebowski and whatever. And I figured there's probably a lot of people that will buy this, this shoe that have no idea who I was. And, <laughs> and I don't want somebody to not buy it because they're not a Lenoski fan or whatever. So yeah. when I used to have the riding compound in my backyard, it was, we always called it the Lynx because the street that I live on is Lynx Court. Okay. And when we made that shoe, I pitched about calling it the Teva Lynx and we ended up calling it the Teva Lynx. So anybody that was kind of like a Lenoski fan knew about my yard that we called the Lynx and knew the, the tie-in. Mm -hmm. And then if you've never heard of me or don't like me or whatever, you'd still buy a Lynx because every bike has a, has a bicycle chain that has Lynx in it. Yeah. So that was probably the most rewarding thing just to, help develop a shoe and have a signature shoe and go places and see people actually wearing that shoe. Yeah. And then every, every, um, season we would get to pick new colors and stuff. So that was always fun to like figure out what was trending and, and things like that. Mm -hmm. Um, so that was probably one of the most fun things I've ever done. And then also, um, when I first started riding for giant, we had a bike called the giant STP, which stood for street trails and park, which kind of, encompassed all the type of riding that I enjoyed doing and yeah. anything you would do on a free ride hardtail, like a pump track bike. And I helped them develop that bike. So that was pretty awesome to basically take drawings that were prototype bikes that I always had made when I was at Schwinn. And when I first started at Giant, I would always ride prototype or, or one-off frames that would be built similar to how a Giant frame was built or whatever. It just had custom geometry. Yeah, But it was really cool to like take that geometry that I had ridden for years and then apply it to like an actual production bike that people could go out and buy. And it's always awesome when you'd make a bike like that and then see somebody at a bike park or pump track or whatever, and they're on the bike and they tell you how much they like it. And you, you know, you realize that you could give back to the sport and like make things better for, for other riders just by using your influence or whatever, or the pull that you have with these sponsors. So it's, it's pretty sweet to do stuff like that. I really enjoy it. Yeah, that's cool. So with these, I mean, I imagine every project is different, but would you be testing like one prototype and then you kind of have some feedback and then you're on another version? Like how many versions do some of these products go through? Oh, they go through quite a bit. Like with the, um, with, when we were developing the shoe for Teva, we would have dozens like literally dozens of different versions like at first it was trying to figure out just how the the actual shoe was going to fit and then we spent a ton of time testing rubber for the sole um trying to find the right combination of grip and slip and mm -hmm. and things like that so with shoes like that you would try all different kinds of versions like first of all just nailing the fit and everything like that and then once you get that done and that could be four different versions then figuring out how the footbed and the last is going to feel to to get an idea of like how much bend and flex you want on a mountain bike shoe because it's all new territory. And working with Teva was cool because it was just a complete white paper. It wasn't like a different shoe brand that tried to modify something that they had. You know, Teva was always known as a flip-flop company. Right. And then when they started to get into like regular sneakers, they never did anything like that before. So it was just completely starting from scratch. So it was really awesome we weren't modifying or just changing something that already existed. So then we would do a bunch of different versions just to get like the, the footbed and the, and the feel of how it flex. And then the biggest thing was trying to get the right combination of, of grippiness and foot mobility for the rubber on the sole. Because back in the, back then you either had something like 
a pair pair of vans, which were great if it if the weather was perfect. You know, everybody rides BMX and vans and whatever. And mm-hmm. if it's a dry, sunny day in California, it's great. Um, it, or on the other end of the spectrum, you had 510, which is where you basically put your foot down and you're not readjusting your foot again. Yeah, it's like blue. And since the Teva shoe is aimed more as at like a free ride freestyle kind of market, we kind of wanted to find that sweet spot in the middle. Um, something where you did have grip if it's, you know, a little wet or muddy or something like that. But we want to be able to reposition the shoe for when you're doing tricks and stuff like that. You know, you don't always land with your foot exactly where you want it. So that was, a that was pretty fun because first we had to figure out the right rubber compound. And then once we found the right rubber compound, then the tread pattern didn't necessarily work because the rubber was softer. So what you think was going to be a good tread pattern doesn't really work anymore. So we would have to adjust that. But just going through all those different versions was was pretty fun. And then with uh, with the giant STP, that was uh, a, pro- a progression of a geometry that I had ridden probably for five or six years beforehand. And it was just I was always tweaking those prototypes for myself. But it was really awesome. Like leading up to that point, if I met a kid, he'd see it and tell me that I have a pretty sweet bike and you'd high five him and. <laughs> they couldn't buy that bike, <laughs> but, yeah. but then once that bike became available for, for purchase, it was awesome to like ride a product where if somebody's like, Hey, that's a really awesome bike. They could actually go out and buy it. And it wasn't like it was an unobtainable price or whatever. Like yeah. it was a good value and, and it was a, a bike that somebody could go out and buy. So it's, I've always been in a position where like you can get prototype stuff and one-off stuff, but I've always like, whenever I get something that's custom or whatever, I always try to get the people that I'm working with to produce it because, um, it's cool to, to be able to have access to like one off equipment or something like that. But, but the real value is like to make it available for other riders. Yeah. Um, it doesn't serve me any good to, to just have it for myself. Right. Yeah. Well, it serves me good, but it doesn't, it doesn't serve anybody else good. Right. Well, yeah, that's, that's a really cool inside look at sort of how products are developed and, sort of all the thought that goes into it. I think a lot of times these days, you know, we see a finished product and people are quick to, you know, rip the design apart, um, on the internet, especially. Um, but yeah, clearly there's a lot that goes into that and it's, it's not an easy job. So it sounds like you've ridden pretty much everywhere and judging by your YouTube videos, I would say that is the case. What's your favorite trailer or what's sort of your favorite place to ride? Hmm. I've, you know, I grew up on the East coast in New Jersey and I went to college in Pennsylvania and, you know, some of your listeners might be familiar with New Jersey and realize that's all, not all (laughs) Jersey shore and fist pumping and stuff like that. Like we actually do have some pretty, pretty good mountain bike riding. So I like the Rudy technical terrain and, you know, the, the trees and everything like that of the East coast. So Probably in the United States, my favorite place to ride would be Brevard, North Carolina, or just Pisgah National Forest. Yeah. And the reason is it's the terrain is very, very similar to what I'm used to, but it's just more epic. Yeah. So I can go to Brevard and do a an hour to an hour and 20 minute climb with a 20 to 30 minute downhill. And that same ride in New Jersey, you know, you're, you're really milking it to get a 15, <laughs> 20 minute climb and a three minute downhill. So yeah. When I go there, I feel right at home. Um, it's the terrain that I'm familiar with. The, the dirt feels the same. It's just much more of it. Mm-hmm. So that would probably be my favorite place in um, the U.S. Close second. With- What's the most challenging trail you found in Pisgah? Oh, the most challenging trail would probably be Farlow Gap, which is one of my earlier Trail Boss episodes. Mm-hmm. And it's just, it has everything. It has some really high-speed really rocky terrain it has some super technical challenging stream crossings Mm -hmm. it has a a few technical climbs and then it has some really flowy single track down at the bottom so that one's pretty good it really has a little bit of everything yeah so i like that one quite a bit and then as far as like runner-ups for place to places to ride um i had gone to sedona years and years and years ago but i went back this past march and I really like riding in Sedona. The the types of things you can do on those rocks out there as far as like traction and everything is just amazing. You really have to like recalibrate your brain a little bit because when you the first few days when you get there coming from these coasts, the things that you think are possible with traction and stuff like that 
or or the things you think aren't possible after a couple of days of riding and familiarizing yourself with like how your bike reacts on that kind of stuff, you realize that it, it's all possible that you can, you can climb up the steepest stuff that you never thought you could, and you could roll down the steepest stuff with control and, and whether it's like a side angle. So the, so that's awesome. But the biggest challenge there is just trying to focus on the trail because when you ride around Sedona, like everything is so beautiful mm-hmm. that you're constantly dis- distracted. Like you're trying to like take in the scenery while riding on the side of a cliff. It's, it's, yeah. it can get a little dicey, but Sedona is probably one of my favorite places in the, in the world to ride. And then last but not least, it's such a cliche answer and I hate giving it, but the whole Whistler area is just amazing. Like I always want to try to come up with a spot that no one's ever heard of. Yeah. But I say the same one that everybody else said, which is Whistler, just because it really is amazing. It has a little bit of everything. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, you named three of the big ones, um, but I've been surprised watching your videos, especially we were talking about the one in Marquette, um, just to see, you know, while, while there might be like the whole trail isn't epic, there are some really interesting sections like that really steep uh, rock role that you found there in Marquette. What other surprises have you found in sort of unassuming places? Probably that's been the the most rewarding part of doing these videos is you see that there's pretty awesome mountain biking everywhere. And if you can appreciate it for, for what it is, you can have a good time anywhere. You know, if you, if you think that mountain biking is only going to be just epic mountains, then sure, something like Florida or Indiana's gonna you know seem like it's not so awesome to you but Mm -hmm. if you love technical riding or flowy single track or you know if you're willing to to change what you consider awesome you can find amazing trails everywhere two of the biggest surprises that i found that i never would have ever expected is mountain biking in florida is awesome Mm -hmm. Um, and i really can't even pick a pick a favorite but because there's not huge mountains, it forces everybody to be so creative with their trail building Right. that recently I went down to Virginia Key, which is near Miami, and it's super fun. And these guys build these cool little trails with all kinds of ladder bridges. And the whole thing is like right on the side of the water. So again, it's like, <laughs> yeah, it's completely beautiful. And they, they build these really fun courses, Alafia River State Park yeah. down in Florida. They just like, when you go there, it's like a mountain bike park outdoors there's just all kinds of stunts and ladder bridges and all kinds of awesome stuff and i follow them on facebook now and they're constantly building more stuff so that's an awesome one but the one of the biggest surprises and it was literally the the impetus for the trail boss video series because it was the first place i ever was when i got that challenge thrown at me was oh you ride mountain bikes too i have the trail for you is indiana okay there is a there's a place in indiana brown county state park i had been going to indiana for years doing mountain bike trials demos and like i said once i started racing some enduro there was a woman who puts on a super d at brown county state park and she came to my trials demo and she was like you should come and do the super d this fall and she's like, oh, and while you're there, I have a trail that, that you would love. I've never seen anybody clear it. It's Schooner's Trace. And being a little bit of a mountain bike snob, I just laughed to myself, like, <laughs> how hard could this trail in Indiana be? Like, yeah, tra- I've been to I've been to harder places in Indiana. And a few months later, I went and checked it out. And it was every bit as challenging as it possibly could have been. It's definitely one of the, oh, wow. the hardest trails I've ever ridden. And the terrain there is awesome. It's on like the Kentucky Indiana border, and there's there's elevation. There's lots of like limestone rock. Mm-hmm. There's flowy single track. Um, I've spent a bunch of time mountain biking there, and I never would have expected it. And it's really really awesome. Yeah, that's cool. Definitely gives people a lot to to yeah. Hopefully expand where they're willing to go and ride. And just, I mean, that's for me too. That's always been why I've enjoyed mountain biking is just the variety and going different places and checking out different trails. So yeah, definitely super inspiring. So your YouTube channel, as we've mentioned a number of times is extremely popular. How'd you get started? And do you have any tips for others who are trying to build a mountain bike audience online? I got started with YouTube um, about two and a half years ago when I started doing Trail Boss. And I came at it from the perspective of I've, I've rode professionally for over 20 years. And I was always used to the traditional gatekeeper of editorial content, you know, mm-hmm. 
you would hit me up and say, we want to do a story for you about single tracks and, and somebody would put you on a website or back in the day, you'd do a photo shoot for a magazine and, and somebody had to like qualify you to be in that or <laughs> the video parts and stuff like that. Right. So I was always used to creating content and honestly not really having any type of competition. You know, you if you earned a spot in a New World Disorder video, there's only 10 guys from the entire world in that video. So yeah. once you stake your claim, then you just have to like earn your, you know, continue to earn your spot. But there's no competition. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> right. So when I first started doing um, Trail Boss videos two and a half years ago, my goal was to make those videos for editorial content. I was going to just originally make them and give them to sites like single tracks or MTBR or pink bike so that they can host it and, and show it to their, their viewers. And I just put them on YouTube only for the sole purpose of just having a place to host it. Yeah. I, I was very adamant when I first started like that I'm making this video series and, and you can see it on YouTube, but I'm not a YouTuber at all. Like <laughs> right. I don't want to be a YouTuber. You know, I, I thought YouTube was lame, to be honest with you. I was, mm -hmm. I was like, I'm going to I'm making it for a mountain bike website, not for YouTube. Right. And the first year they got great views and people liked them. But I, I had like 800 subscribers after the first year or maybe even longer than the first year. And I thought like once I make videos, like everybody's going to watch it because everybody always watched DVDs and they always <laughs> read magazines. So, like, of course, they're going to watch YouTube. And, I was, and at first I was like, wow, like they're getting good views, but nobody's subscribing or anything like that. And I thought it was kind of weird, but I would go to events and I would have a little bit of traction. And I would have people mention trail boss and stuff. And it just kind of struck me like, wow, I, I can't believe like that has the, the reach that it does. I didn't, didn't really expect, you know, out of all the stuff you've done, I didn't think that trail boss would be such a hit. Mm -hmm. And then I went to Nemba Fest about it, which is in New England, New England Mountain Bike Association Festival a year, a little over a year ago, like a year and a half. And I met up with some other YouTubers, Nate Hills and Phil Metz, and they had like these huge YouTube channels. And they were both pro riders at one time too. And, and they're like, dude, nothing that you've ever done before YouTube, like nobody cares. <laughs> and I'm like, ah, it's kind of humbling, but okay. So then I, I, took that to kept that in mind. And I started doing like some more weekly content and some more engaging content, some how to's and stuff like that. And I, I started to learn that like, once you show your personality and stuff like that, hopefully people like you. And if they do, then that's how you grow a following. Not just like, yeah. not just pointing your handlebars down some trail and thinking like, well, if I ride at the best, I'm going to have the most followers or whatever. It doesn't really work like that. So my strategy over the past year is basically been every video that I make, I want people to feel like they've learned something. I realize that everybody's super busy. Um, you could only watch so many YouTube videos in a day and pointing your handlebars down the sickest trail isn't going to get me more views than it would be somebody else who's more entertaining. So I want people that watch my videos to feel like they learned something. So if it's a trail boss video, I want them to like learn about some trail that maybe people considered unrideable. And I want to obviously like show off some riding skill, but I want to, I want people to feel like they learn some takeaways or at least like they know what that trail is going to look like if they ever want to try it. So you're not going into it blind. So that's like the idea with the, with the trail boss videos. I really like doing how to videos and I love reading comments from people like that, that they've improved their skill or they want to go out and try it or whatever. So I've been trying to do more how to content and then even with like, I do like weekly content and I typically call those like ride alongs and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. It's not just a mismatch of, of trail riding. Like it wouldn't just be like Jeff goes to, to Moab. I want to show like a particular trail. If I'm going to go, it's going to be, you know, mag seven, or it's going to be a whole entire trail and, and it might be edited up. You're not going to show everything, but mm -hmm. at least the viewer knows like if they watch that, and they ever go ride that trail, they know what they're in store for. Yeah. So again, feeling like they learned something. I want to try to provide value to my, to my viewers with every video that they watch, you know, hopefully some entertainment too, but you know, at least make them feel like they, they learned something because I totally appreciate, appreciate when people watch that stuff. And I realize everybody has limited time. So unless you're giving them something valuable to take away from it, right. then they, they could just go watch anybody else's or not not pay attention. So I want to make it, make it worth your while and make you feel like you learned something and, and stuff like that. Yeah. 
Yeah, we love sharing your videos for that reason. I mean, I think we have a similar mission, which is uh, to help people learn about mountain biking, you know, and like share that information and learning and everything. So that, yeah, it's really great to hear you say that. So what do you have in store for 2019? Uh, for 2019, I'm, I'm in the works to make some pretty big changes to my program. You know, over the past 20 years, like I said, it's, it's been all about going to different retailers and doing those trials demos and then squeezing in all the other stuff when I can. And, um, this past year, I've started doing a bunch more group rides at mountain bike festivals. Oh, cool! And the reason I like the reason I like trials demos is because I've always been like kind of like a an events guy as well as a a, a rider. So I I always liked doing trials demos because I like setting up an event at a venue, whether it's a bike shop or a festival or something. Like I've always enjoyed the nuts and bolts kind of hands on creating an event, and then. I love riding for people or with people or whatever, you know, it's, it's awesome whether you're doing a demonstration and you see people inspired to go ride, or if you're actually on the trail with people and you see that they're having fun, but I just love that interaction. And, um, this past year I started doing some more group rides at mountain bike festivals and I've, and I've started to see that like you could draw a pretty decent crowd doing that as well. Not just always just showing off at a, a bike shop parking lot with a trials demo or whatever. Yeah. So this year I, I was really, really busy cause I was kind of trying to do a lot of both. I was trying to do all those demos at bike shops, but I was also trying to go to festivals and, and show that that could be valuable to companies and to myself and whatever, and to, to riders. So for next year, I'm going to try to focus mainly on my YouTube channel developing content for that. Cause I've started to see like when I actually do have time to sit down and do like a good edit, like a how to, or put a little bit more time and effort into it that people enjoy it and the and the results are great. Yeah. So I want to, I want to dedicate more time to that. And I also want to dedicate more time to like a trail boss tour of 10 to 12 mountain bike festivals next year and just really, really do them the right way. Get get out there, ride with people, get my sponsors involved, and try to interact with as many people as possible like that versus so much, you know, instead of the trials, demos, and stuff like that. When you're riding as a pro rider, you know, it, you want to do what you want to do, but you also need to figure out a way to make it valuable for people to support. And, I, and I've started to show that, like, when I could go to these mountain bike festivals between riding with a ton of awesome people and and getting them involved and making some videos out of it that that stuff could be valuable as well yeah and that's really where my heart is and that's what i love doing so uh those would be my two focuses moving forward cool i'm sure i'm sure you can still catch a jeff lanoski trials show somewhere but <laughs> i probably won't be doing as many of those next year the the best part about the trail boss rides that i've been doing if uh, anybody's listening and they ever want to get a chance to get on one by January 1st, I'm hoping to have a, a website up that'll list my appearance dates. Or obviously, if you just subscribe to my YouTube channel, that's an awesome way to just follow what I'm doing. But um, when I do these trail boss rides, we'll typically go to wherever the festival is. And when we do a ride, we're hitting the trails and it's a no drop ride. And we're not trying to hammer and see who's the fastest. We're going to mm -hmm. ride the trails that people in that area typically ride. And when there's challenging sections on the trail, we stop and we session and we do like some clinicking and we break it down and everybody takes turns trying it. And, and I might try it some weird way. And, you know, so I, I still get to show off a little bit, but I could, I could, sh I could still extend some knowledge to people and like help them ride it. And by the end of the ride, you just see tons of people with the light bulbs that went off on their head in their head. And they feel like they've improved as a rider and learned something new and, it's pretty cool. Like it's, it's super fun to go out on those rides with people and, and do that stuff. Yeah. That's really awesome. And I'm sure a lot of our listeners are excited that they'll have more opportunities to connect with you this year. So thanks for joining us, Jeff. We really appreciate it. If you want to subscribe to Jeff's YouTube channel, you can search YouTube for the trail boss, Jeff Linoski. Uh, definitely subscribe to him so you can get his latest content. And also, we'd love it if you'd sign up for the Single Tracks newsletter so you can keep up with all the things that we're working on as well. That's all we've got this week. We'll talk to you again next week. Peace. <laughs>